0: As chair of Inengard, I'm delighted to welcome you to the International Virtual Conference, The World of Work, The Great Reset. We have six fantastic sessions with participants and speakers from across the globe. Uh, You're very welcome to this session. For those that don't know, Inengard is an international employment law network across 14 countries. I really do hope that you enjoy the next session, and please feel free to participate in the networking sessions afterwards. Thanks very much
1: good morning, good afternoon and good evening to you, wherever you may be around the world. And thank you all for joining us for this panel discussion on social movements impacting the world of work. My name is Rowan Byrne. I'm from Inningard's Australian member firm, People and Culture Strategies. And I have the pleasure and the privilege to chair this panel of distinguished speakers. So without further ado, let me introduce them to you. Shona Jolly QC from the UK. Shona is a Queen's Council barrister specialising in equality, human rights, employment, and international law. Shona is the chair of the Bar Human Rights Committee of England and Wales, and is the head of Cloisters Human Rights and Practice Group. Welcome Shona.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Maria Eugenia gay Roselle from Spain. Maria Eugenia is the president of the Catalan Bar Council, president of the Barcelona Bar Association, the vice president of the Spanish National Bar Council, along with a number of other presidencies. She is a highly acclaimed lawyer, a master in mediation, and the founding partner of the law firm Gay Roselle & Solana. Welcome.
3: Good morning. Thank you.
1: Our third speaker is Beth Hale from the UK. Beth is a partner at CM Murray, specialising in employment and partnership law, and also acts as the general counsel for the firm. Beth has significant experience advising on all aspects of employment law, including discrimination, and also provides day-to-day advice to employers on HR and management issues, such as grievance procedures. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. So thank you again to our panel and to all our attendees for taking the time to participate in this virtual conference. You will all see that on the right-hand side of your screen, there is a chat pane with a section titled Q&A. You are encouraged to get involved in this discussion by typing questions into that Q&A chat pane. And while I can't guarantee that we will get the chance to address your questions, those questions may be matters we can discuss during the networking session immediately after this discussion. So 2020 was a year where conversations at home, at work and in the media were primarily focused around the impact and management of the COVID-19 pandemic. But amongst this COVID-19 discourse, we saw a powerful resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And now in the beginning of 2021, particularly in the Australian context, it seems that there is again a focus on sexual harassment in the workplace and the Me Too movement. Maria Eugenia, I'd like to start the discussion with a question for you. Why have social movements like Me Too been so successful and why is it so important to support them in times of COVID-19?
3: Thank you, Rohan, and good morning, dear colleagues. First of all, I would like to thank you so much to Augusta Abogados for giving me such a great opportunity to participate in this webinar and to in gart and together with eminent jurists to whom I award me so I think that movements such as me too should make us reflect on the importance of involving society, especially influential people, leaders and decision makers, when the below supports networks within companies, educational centres, universities, as well as at an associative and community level. The empowerment of empathy was what led the American activist Tarana Burke to found the Me Too movement in 2006. It was an expression that she began to use in order to raise awareness about how sexual abuse and discrimination is uh, witherspread in our society. Her motivation was to provide support to women who have suffered sexual harassment, to make them see that they are not alone, and to help them so that they do not feel guilty for their mis- misfortune. It was in 2017 when MeToo went viral on social networks, thanks to actress Alisa Milano, who, following the scandal of film producer Harvey Winstein, encouraged women to tweet their experiences so that people would realize how settled is misogyny around us. The hashtag MeToo spread internationally in, mo- in almost 100 countries, in the street from Hollywood to other industries, such as music, science or politics. It was even the subject of an European Parliament meeting, a clear sign of the collective feeling to fight against the discrimination in all its forms. We need to ensure more than ever an effort since United Nations Women has warned that COVID-19 has affected women more intensely due to the greater structural precariousness they suffer, compared to men, and that in the economic and labor area, it turns into reduced ability to cope uh, with disasters. In the field of gender violence, in which we must include sexual harassment, the response that the United Nations is launching to mitigate the impact of the pandemic on gender differences has focused on the following fundamental axes. First, prevention and awareness support and rapid assessments, access to essential services, including hotlines, awareness regarding violence against women in public and private spaces, and data collection and coordination mechanisms that include gender perspectives. Thank
1: you. So Beth and Shona, feel free to to jump in here at any time. I wanna pick up on what you said, Maria, Eugenia, about those three things that the Me Too movement is trying to emphasize in, in a response to the Me Too movement, the response should focus on prevention, providing support, awareness, and it's got to be a rapid response. How how do those things impact on the workplace and the Me Too movement or sexual harassment more specifically in the workplace? Are we, are organisations responding in that way?
0: Yeah, so I think, I, mean, I think the Me Too movement has caused a kind of sea change in in workplaces, certainly since 2017, and in attitudes to sexual harassment. Firstly, in attitudes to reporting, that I think um, there is, you know, people are really encouraged. I I mean, I I obviously don't speak for all workplaces, but I think that there is much more of an attitude that people um, can report and should feel able to report. There's also much more of of an attitude that um, people should feel able to report When they witness so bystander reporting when they witness harassment in the workplace and i don't think that that has happened everywhere but i think that there has been a real change in attitude to that i think there was definitely a huge change in awareness people know their rights much more than they did before and they know what sexual harassment is much more than they did before and they know you know what what is involved and and how to deal with it and i think a lot of employers are getting much better at putting in place policies and processes um to deal with that and so that people know know how to report internally. I, I don't think it's quick enough. Um, I think uh, I, I absolutely agree that it has to be a rapid change and it is not perhaps as rapid as it ought to be. And I think that it varies wildly from industry to industry. And I think industries where there have been big public issues are now, you know, are changing more quickly than ones where there was where that hasn't happened yet. So, you know, you talk about law having its me too moment or, you know, finance having its me too moment, or, you know, there are plenty of industries which have not yet had their kind of public me too moment. And those ones are not changing as rapidly. So I think it does take some kind of event in, in a particular industry for, for change to happen.
1: Mm. And when we speak about this awareness that the Me Too movement is bringing to the workplace, do we think it really is a situation where people do have a better understanding of what they should or should not do in the workplace when it comes to sexual harassment? Or is it simply that more people are saying, and perhaps with a bit more uncertainty, oh, gosh, I really need to be more careful about what I do, who I do, and where I do it?
0: Yeah, interesting question. I think... um, think People are more aware of what is acceptable, whether they thought it was acceptable before or not. I suppose you know, or, but but thought they could get away with it. I suppose that's a different question. Yes, I think that you know that 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 you know there may have been situations where people knew that what they, you know knew that the conduct they're engaging in was not acceptable, but you know knew, also thought that they could get away with it. And I think that you know that that has changed. And I think there has been a real you know we've seen some high profile. Uh, uh men it is normally men um lose their jobs over uh, over sexual harassment issues where previously probably what would have happened is that they the, the issues would have been slightly brushed under the carpet the more junior woman would have been kind of shuffled out quietly and paid off and the the sort of powerful man might have stayed and i think we are we are starting i don't say we're there yet but we are starting to see a change in that and and in the kind of certainly in the assumptions that employers make about what what should happen when someone makes an allegation of sexual harassment. I think you know the assumption is no longer you know let's brush it under the carpet and move on there I think there is we are seeing a real change in kind of expectation of what happens. So I mean I don't I, I don't think I don't you know a lot of the conduct we're talking about when we talk about sexual harassment in the workplace is it's not that it was acceptable before but it was certainly accepted in in mm. a lot of places and I think that that is changing
1: um so it seems there is there is a change of attitude it's it's uh, perhaps it's a change of attitude but it's also the fact that now there is a much bigger and brighter spotlight on this conduct that's there for longer as well
0: yeah i think that's right i think that's right i think it has put a real spotlight on it and you know further incidents that occur and further stories that make it to the front pages um keep shining that spotlight and i don't think it's going anywhere um I, and i think it needs to that spotlight needs to you know it, me too was not a kind of one-off quick flash in the pan moment it's a continu, you know it's a continuum and actually there's plenty of change that still needs to happen um and you know we're certainly not there yet mm-hmm. and i think it's driving also change and not just sort of anti-sexual harassment change but i think it's driving change in um you know attitudes to gender equality yeah. to equal pay I think it's 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 driving other change beyond its kind of immediate remit
2: I think Beth I just um I, I thought I'd just um step in there because and um, one of the things Eugenia was talking about was rapid change mm-hmm. and I think when you when you think about sexual harassment and the changes that we have, as lawyers have seen in workplaces ourselves. I think it is really important to set it in this wider context of change within the workplace, because ultimately, I mean, people knew sexual harassment was the wrong thing to do three years ago or four years ago, they they knew it. They just, they either got away with it because um, they thought they would get away with it and there wasn't a a sort of systemic structure which empowered women to come forward. or there were you know, for example, you know not other women that, that that someone might come forward and speak to and you know and one of those issues that that's I think highlighted is lack of structures within workforces where there's a you know to use that common word now safe space, but where there is actually an environment in which um women or victims of other discrimination or harassment are able to come forward and speak and to be believed. And one aspect of that is about procedural structures within workplace and changing those procedural structures. But another aspect of that is is, is equality more broadly, mm-hmm. because harassment and victimisation and discrimination often do take place where you have smaller numbers of women less powerful groupings um and that's been a system that we've lived with in workplaces for so long and we still see it in you know boards that are not equal etc boards of directors senior employees uh, within workforces etc so you know there's a whole range of changes that come with it um uh, and those changes that I think go beyond uh, the Me Too movement. And we, we begin to see how that has opened up spaces to discuss other forms of equality within the workplace and other forms of social movement. So we see how that began to open up discussion around the BLM movement last year, for example. And there are parallels between how workforces have sought to respond. Not, not exactly parallel, but there are parallels and there are common themes.
1: Mm. And on those structures and and moving away from just harassment, but to equality, um, Maria Eugenia, I understand that in Spain there is a thing called an equality plan. Uh, Do all companies have to have an equality plan?
3: Yes, everyone. In Spain, companies uh, with more than 100 employees are obligated to carry out uh, an equality plan, being the prevention of sexual harassment based on sex, one of its essential contents, really. Uh, in this case, Barcelona Bar Association has developed an ambitious equality plan, which has been designed not only to be applied internally, we have 200 employees, but also to serve as a model for law firms in accordance with a guide that we have prepared to help lawyers and female lawyers uh, to the implementation of equality programs within their firms. Uh, with concrete and effective actions such as, uh, for example, the incorporation of the gender perspective in all the bar training plans, the development of an inclusive language protocol and the use of image consistent with the diversity of a group uh, like ours, uh, the promotion of actions to fight against gender violence, to make visible the female talents and the the contribution of women lawyers and juries. I think it's really a very important point to, to make this visible um, work uh, for, for women lawyers. Then it's um, important to the opening of a com, a complaint channel so uh, that lawyers can inform to the bar about situations that are considered discriminatory, like sexual harassment that they are suffering. We know all of us that Sometimes that's happening in the law firm. So it's important to, to attack and to um, help them to, to communicate this situation. Um, or for example, the creation of an equality level for those firms committed to equality and conciliation among many other actions. Uh, um, companies, uh, I think that can negotiate with the employees. Uh, so it's important to have a, a representation uh, of women there no the preparation and dissemination of codes of good practices it's really very important also as well as carrying out information companies or training actions uh, the awareness of employees against sexual harassment and information on how to act when things type of behavior is detected is essential to prevent the victim from mm, feeling defenseless or misunderstood It's very important they have all the tools to react at this situation. Gender equality and the empowerment of women constitute one of the axes of the United Nations 2030 Agenda, having been specifically contemplated in Sustainable Development Goal number 5. So our commitment has to be very strong, and it's a sign that the public authorities, institutions, companies and civil society as a whole, we must do everything in our power to prevent, detect and attack any situation that leads to direct or indirect discrimination. So uh, I think that equality is today an inseparable element of a society Mm. that aspires to be truly democratic, you know. Mm.
1: Beth, Shona, is there a a similar situation in the UK where the Me Too movement has led to a change in in the law or imposed a, a reporting requirement or an equality plan, anything like that?
0: So, uh, there has, it's led to various inquiries and consultations. Um, so, the, the um, UK Parliament has had done an uh, inquiry, the Women in Equality Select Committee of the House of Commons has done an uh, inquiry into sexual harassment in the workplace and an inquiry into the use of non-disclosure agreements, mm. um, which is sort of related to the sexual harassment issues. Um, they've made various recommendations um, other bodies, the the UK Equalities regulators also made various recommendations on, on potential changes to the law. Not much has actually happened in practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might say the government's had some other things on its plate in the last few years, but um, you know, with with Brexit and the pandemic, but I think it's a it's a matter of I think concern certainly that that there there have been a lot there's been a lot of talk, but not much actual action.
1: Mm. What's your What's your take on that in relation to non-disclosure agreements as a result of the sexual harassment lawsuit? Is that something that um, should be encouraged, at least from the organisation's perspective, to put an end to the matter? Or is that something that really stifles um, the person that is uh, the victim of the sexual harassment?
0: I mean, NDA is obviously a pretty... A- Become, you know, become a really controversial issue in sexual harassment cases. Um, and I think you know, different people have different views on them. My view is they do have a place, but I think they need to be really, really clear. And where they've been used in the past to stifle um, disclosures, valid disclosures, for example, to the police or to the regulator, or um, you know, or, or to hide patterns of behaviour. You know, the Harvey Weinstein case is an obvious example. Um I think you know that they, they, they have to be used very carefully and appropriately. And most importantly, the people who are signing them, the individuals who are signing them, have to understand what they are prevented from saying and what they are not prevented from saying. And I think the problem is, the problem arises where they're used in a in a sort of oppressive way and to give the impression that they are um that people are prevented from saying more than they are actually prevented from saying. So I think what and that I mean that we have seen a, a real change in legal practice in how NDAs are drafted. And um, while they used to be, you know, often used in, in just as a kind of knee-jerk standard clause in a contract in a settlement agreement after a claim, um, rarely negotiated, um, just sort of signed up to, they are now much more likely to be negotiated. I think people are giving them much more careful thought. Um, lawyers are thinking about whether you know whether and and are encouraging lawyers uh, encouraging employers i think to think about whether you need an nda in a particular case and if so what the purpose of it is it's that that they are they're being thought about and considered much more carefully than than they were before i think Mm. and the the i mean the solicitor's regulation authority in the uk issued a warning notice in 2018 to in march 2018 about the use of NDAs, um, which has, you know, it has it has changed practice, I think, and changed the way people think about NDAs. But there's, I mean, they're certainly still being used.
1: Mm. We had a, a similar um, concept in in Australia. A particular um, state of Australia, Tasmania, had a had a particularly old law dealing with not in a workplace context, but sexual assault and um, and rape more more broadly. And the law did limit what a person could say. Um, after they had been made after they were a victim of, of sexual assault or rape and that was overturned at the end of last year. So I think there is um, there is an impact from these movements both within the workplace and in the broader community. but I want to come back to what we're saying about the way that these sorts of claims are responded to in in a, in a legal setting um, and particularly with respect to litigation. So we might say that there's a change of emphasis when it comes to, the settlement deed itself what what that does include and doesn't include in terms of confidentiality um do we think anything else has changed in how an organization might respond to a law a lawsuit relating to sexual harassment sometimes i get the feeling that organizations are more worried about the consequences of receiving a sexual harassment claim than they are about the actual validity of the claim itself and what that might mean for their organization
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely an issue that, you know, people view, employers view um, harassment as a litigation risk Mm. rather than a cultural problem. Mm. And I think that is a sort of attitudinal shift, which is happening, but happening slowly. I think that, you know, it's all about avoiding a claim rather than making sure that you are fostering a culture where people feel safe and people feel able to speak up and people people feel able to talk about issues that they have come across in the workplace. Um, And I think... know we've talked about rapid change i think that kind of change you know is taking time um and i think but i think that's the key shift it's not you know harassment shouldn't be viewed as a a litigation risk it should be viewed as a cultural problem Mm. and i've seen on the q a someone's asked a question about whether um whether the panel thinks that actually education on this kind of issue should start at, at grassroots level at kind of education school level rather than in the workplace and i think that's absolutely right it's not you know um it's not just down to employers to educate their staff on, educate their workers on how to how to behave in the workplace. It does, you know, it, it, it is a societal issue and it ought to start earlier, but that doesn't, that shouldn't take away the responsibility that employers have to, to ensure that they are fostering a culture where people, where sexual harassment doesn't happen and where if it does, people feel able to speak up about it.
1: Mm. And Beth, I like that point that it's not just about sexual harassment happening. It's about creating that culture where people do feel safe. Um, Mm. And and similarly, it's not about whether someone has engaged in conduct that would meet all the legal criteria of sexual harassment. Um, Marie Eugenia, what happens to those behaviours that are not clearly defined by law as sexual harassment but are still offensive or inappropriate?
3: Yes, look, uh, first of all, here in Spain, it's important uh, to take care that uh, law uh, defines sexual harassment as any behavior, verbal or physical, of a sexual nature that has the purpose or has the effect of undermining the dignity of a person, particularly when an intimidating, degrading, or offensive environment is created. So there are a lot of uh, conducts that are out of this uh, definition and companies uh, will have to adopt necessary measures to prevent such situations from occurring, as well as to articulate relevant mechanisms so that those who have been victims of this type of behaviors can report them in order, uh, as I told, uh, to adopt appropriate corrections and that the corresponding uh, responsibilities are clarified. And I think it's important that um, con- there are some behaviors um, that the speed not being criminally punishable, as you uh, said, at least in an obvious way, taking into account the current regulatory framework should be considered sexist as therefore unworthy, as stated in the Equality Plan uh, Law of 2007 here in, in Spain, I think it is important to fight against direct discrimination, but also to guarantee a healthy work environment, uh, an obligation of the companies. Uh, this uh, healthy work environment, free of inappropriate and sexist attitudes that can make other employees uncomfortable because of sex, in particular to women. So our um, Attitude has to be very active to detect these uh, particular situations and to fight against them. So.
1: I understand. And in this sort of response that organisations are taking to sexual harassment, do we think that there is uh, some organisations or some people that feel the organisation goes too far in their response? Is there ever a situation where people have just been told that the golden rules are... Don't discuss anything of a personal nature, never discuss how a person is dressed, don't find yourself in a situation where you were alone with someone, and most certainly never make physical contact. Is there anything wrong with having those as golden rules or are those really just sort of minimum standards that we should be teaching
0: so I think uh, – I mean, I think there's been a pendulum swing, hasn't there? And, you know, some some people might say, well, actually, it's kind of swung too far and we now have this situation where no one can actually engage with their colleagues at all. I have to say I don't really buy that. I think people know where the lines are. People know where the boundaries are. And um, in, if they actually, you know, take it upon themselves to think about it, people know where the boundaries are. And I just think, you, you know, people – I think having golden rules around just not putting not putting anyone in a situation which makes them feel uncomfortable um you know and and training people on what is and isn't appropriate so really good training on you know not the sort of tick box exercise that a lot of uh, a lot of organizations have historically done but proper training on what you know what is appropriate and what isn't um how how sort of a bit of insight into how other people view your behavior so that I think I think what's been a really um an interesting sort of thing that we've seen in our work is people come people so often say "Well, I didn't realize and I'm not excusing any misconduct but I didn't realize how I was seen by my juniors I'm recently promoted I'm I you know I I view myself as kind of one of the one of the you know one of the gang in my workplace and actually I didn't realize that people saw me differently from that and that so so it's sort of getting people to think properly about how their behavior is perceived and getting people to focus on on what is and isn't appropriate and I don't I don't think you know that you don't need I don't think to have a rule saying you know you must never you know make physical contact with a colleague then you know you might have a colleague with whom that is totally appropriate it's all about judging the situation and I just think it isn't that hard? So I, I have limited sympathy for <clears throat> for that kind of you know you know I, I I can't get in a lift with a woman now because of because of me too. I just think mm. you know you can as long as you behave yourself. And I just it, it's yeah I don't I don't think it takes a genius to to know where those lines lie.
1: Shona, I'm interested. We haven't heard from you in a little while. You've got this amazing human rights background um very active um, barrister as well what sort of things have come across your desk um, in the past year um, that you think might have been impacted by social movements
2: well i think i mean i think we the world has seen pandemic aside the world has seen some pretty major social movements over the last year and they've sort of coincided with the pandemic so it's it's actually quite interesting to see uh, a, how they've interacted; those movements have interacted with the workplace, where people, where a lot of people are actually working at home or away from the workplace, mm-hmm. uh, and B, what the changes will be once we get back or if we get back into some sort of workspaces but notwithstanding that so many people have been away from the workplaces um there are all kinds of movements the black lives matters movement um, environmental protests um, and, and now very much more recently you know anti-mask anti-lockdown mm. movements um, in places such as Hong Kong we've seen movements the pro-democracy movement, uh sort of social justice movements and i mean when you think about this we're talking about things that have really happened over have sort of spun um around the world over the course of a year and it's almost impossible to imagine that movements of that scale and size don't have an impact on the workplace and so those are the sorts of things that we're beginning to see impacting on um, both employees and on employers and how how does an employer react so those mm. sorts of social movements that are frankly enormous, that are frankly, you know, bigger than the workplace. They are movements with it, with which people very sort of seriously identify. Um, and we, so we've sort of, we've moved into a world, I think, where there is also quite significant polarisation on these issues. Um, and so uh, whilst, you know, whilst workplaces might have a, resp- a general response, which is, well, actually, we don't want politics in the workplace. We don't want to talk about these things in the workplace. Everybody should just be neutral. Actually, there's a very real question as to whether workplaces either can be neutral, mm. um, or can require their employees to be neutral about some of these issues, or whether they should be. So some of the issues that we've seen coming up over the last year are, h- how do employers properly respond to these movements? Um, and, you know, Black Lives Matter movement is a very good example of, 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 of where a lot of employers actually, I mean, the world sort of woke up in an, in an instant, you see, where there was suddenly this outpouring last summer, where a lot of employers understood that there was so much strength of feeling amongst their employees about this movement that they wanted to be able to react in some way, you know, to use the language of the day, they wanted to be an ally to those employees who supported a movement. And that that may be true of environmental movements or social justice movements, etc. Um, but then, so there are these sort of difficult questions as to how employers can be that ally, to whether employers can in fact support these social movements or support their employees to support these social movements, or whether that's just a straight no in the workplace. Um, And the straight no might be for all kinds of reasons. The straight no might be because, you you know, there's an argument that you're importing that polarisation into your workspace. So, in fact, you are setting employees potentially or allowing a space where employees can be set against each other. Um, There might be here in the UK where we have um, equality Act protection for beliefs, for certain belief systems, there might be a concern that actually you're almost aggravating or creating a space for harassment on the basis of belief, or creating a space where there might be litigation on that side. There might be concerns about branding association links with certain movements as well. Um, so, but then there are concerns by employers who genuinely want to support. Uh, either aspects of these movements or, or employees who believe in them. And I think the BLM movement was a really good example of employers thinking, actually, we really have an issue. The world has an issue, and we can't stand back and say it's got nothing to do with us as a, as a corporate entity. So there are sort of, you know, as a litigator, there are, and, and, and as a lawyer dealing with these issues, there are real questions for employers as to what steps they can validly take to support those to support those movements or to support those employees and what they're better to stay away from.
1: Mm. I think they say you never mix family with politics. same could be true of the workplace, perhaps. But I think you're right, Shona, people are identifying so strongly with these movements that to try to stifle that expression, that identity that they hold with these movements could have repercussions in the workplace. At the very least, could result in someone being disengaged.
2: Well, I mean, I think that's the very least. There are there are also other considerations, you know, I mean, across most of Europe and probably across most of the countries that are, you know, that that our participants are involved in, there are rights to freedom of expression, for example, that 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 are that are or may be engaged. Um, and there are you know increasingly it's becoming very difficult to decide where that line is. I mean, if there's a you know, that no no politics and no, no religion or politics in a social discussion. Um, you know, which very much perhaps used to be the norm. You know, the question is, is that the norm anymore? I mean, in this country, for example, just over Brexit, we've seen, you know, tremendous polarisation within friend circles and family circles. And, and and it's very difficult to see that not spill out into people's assessment of their own identity. Mm. And to what degree do you keep identity out of the workspace? You're, I mean, to, to what not not only might you depersonalise the workplace, but actually you can create an environment that's so stilted that people can only talk about, you know, the the, the meeting they're going to now, the Zoom meeting they're about to go to now. And actually that, you know, does that create a healthy workspace? Um... Uh, And also some of the concerns, you know, that that arise from these movements feel to many people existential. So the Extinction Rebellion movement, for example, the environmental climate justice movements that are happening, for many people feel absolutely existential. So, you know, there is a question about, you know, can you really keep those out of the workplace? How do you, can you really keep them out of the workplace if people have views about the way that the organisation is responding? Uh, for example, to environmental concerns, you know, whether that be literally workplace concerns for employees, or whether that be the the corporate identity and connection with environmental concerns, and, and, and something like the BLM movement, I think is a very clear example of how you can't keep social movements necessarily out of the workplace, because one of the one of the impacts that we saw was that employers were looking at their own identity and saying, actually, do we have a problem with diversity? Do we have a problem with race discrimination? What should we be doing to deal with it? And what do you do, for example, when an employee comes up to you and says, actually, I want to attend a protest, and I want time off to attend a Black Lives Matter protest or an Extinction Rebellion protest or whatever it might be. What's your response to that as an employer? Because actually, you might find yourself potentially on the wrong side of, you know, uh, of legislation relating to belief systems, for example, or freedom of expression. And what do you do when an employee puts up something on social media which everybody does you know first place to go is Facebook or Twitter and and how does you know can the employer stand back from that entirely or not at all we know that there are freedom of expression concerns directly related to labor rights so these are actually very very tricky wires for corporations to think about you know that and they need they need to i think very carefully consider the approaches and actions they might take. And some of them might trigger direct social reform within the corporation. So positive action provisions, for example. Um, mm. So there are you know ethnicity pay gap considerations, for example, training that sort of the Beth talked about in the Me Too context. You can also have that in, in a race context, for example. Settlement agreements again, also potentially relevant when you're considering do we have a problem? Hmm. Have we in fact had 10 settlement agreements with a um, uh, 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 particular ethnic minorities on race discrimination claims over the last five years, for example, only the employer will know that. So, uh, actually, I think that the, the, you know the idea that you can keep social movements entirely out of the workplace is completely artificial. So, Paul- I totally
0: agree. Donna. I think that that sort of you know you can't discuss politics in the workplace, but I think that hits a real problem where politics is so you know one person's politics is another person's real fundamental existential views and i think that you know where where do you draw that line it's impossible i think and i think better to um for employers to allow those discussions obviously to allow those discussions and, and and generate debate and discussion at workplace rather than try and stifle it
1: In a very respectful way, of course. And I think that's where setting setting those boundaries as to how those conversations can occur rather than turning a blind eye completely or trying to shut it out completely is probably the best way forward. Um, You might remember we had a a rather famous um, rugby union player, Israel Folau, who had his employment terminated not too long ago, um, allegedly, because he was expressing his religious views. Now, the employer's position for that, which who we acted for, was that it's not so much the expression of those views, but how that expression has manifested and the harm that those views are causing to others. That is why it was a breach of the particular code of conduct.
3: Hmm.
2: There's actually been a lot of cases like that, Rohan, um, in the UK as well, where you have... Uh, I mean, religious belief is a particular... has been sort of the, at the crossroads, if you like, of that consideration of... Uh, Competing rights, if you like, that employers have had to deal with. But my sense is that, in increasingly secular societies, and in societies that have stepped very far away from homogeneous uh, from from sort of hom- homogenous population of staff, I think the issues of the future are going to relate to beliefs because actually increasingly young people identify with these social movements and the younger workforce identify with certain aspects of different social movements in the way that at one time perhaps workforces identified with a particular religion or a particular nationality or something like that. So actually the idea again that we can hold workforces to a model that perhaps was appropriate 30 or 40 years ago or longer. Today's climate, today's younger generation to the issues that are affecting the world today, I think it's completely unrealistic. And and, and we do need to think about how companies use both legal provisions that are available um, and hit the balancing line between creating an environment that's also free from harassment, that's safe for all employees. Uh, And those are difficult, those are sometimes very difficult lines and boundaries and require a lot of care and i think social media
0: is such an interesting one because this idea that you can have a kind of private life on social media set, totally separate from your work is so that line is so blurred now there's no you know that really you know if you're doing something on social media even you know you used to say well don't you know don't you know make it clear that it's not the views of your company of your employer don't put the name of your employer on your twitter but you know, it's so easy. You can easily find out where someone works. It's not, you know, that making that link is incredibly easy. So I think the idea that that you know anything online is really private in that way is is kind of totally artificial now. And I think that you know em- employers will be seeing what their employees are doing, um, and other people will be seeing what their employees are doing online. And that and there's that you know that yeah. there's the of expression and how that clashes potentially with you know disrepute and bring the you know the reputation of the employer and but also sort of employee relations that if people are expressing views online which uh you know really clash with Mm -hmm. colleagues then i think that you know that that creates a really difficult employee relations issue internally
3: it's really important because i think for example as you were saying now for the companies it's very important to have their reputation and now it's obviously that entities both public and private have the obligation to guarantee the level of rights of employers. And historically, it has been uncomfortable to talk about sexual harassment. It was like, it was forbidden. I mean, nobody uh, talked about that. It wasn't comfortable for the companies and for the employees, but the social movements really, really helped a lot. Um, they helped to visibilize this real problem that uh, in fact is happening in each country everywhere in in the um, i mean in all the uh, spheres and different structures so we have to help women who are suffering this um sexual harassment uh, to 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 highlight their voice i mean it's very important the role that plays social media because uh, it, it's really very easy now to um, to attack the reputation of a company that is uh, where it's happening, this kind of uh, behaviours. Uh, because I think that uh, to defend the feminism is, is to fight for freedoms. And this spirit, we must continue to demand with determination. So I'm um, I'm really very agree with these movements and I think they are very necessary. It was um, a point of starting uh, to fight for this uh, reality that no one was um, so brave to take it out, you know? So, uh, I think it's very important, as Simone de Beauvoir stated, feminism is a way of living individually and fighting collectively. So, it's very important that we can fight against sexual harassment collectively and in in all the ways, I mean, that we have in our hand to, to to externalize it.
1: Agree 100%. And that's part of the thing with the Me Too movement. It is so strong, as is the Black Lives Matter movement. The fact that we had such powerful protests happening in the midst of a pandemic shows how strongly people identify uh, with what that movement is doing. Do we think that all social movements are equal? For example, talking about climate change earlier, Shona, I, I just get the feeling that someone printing too many emails isn't going to get the same sort of reprimand from the employer than someone engaging in inappropriate, um, inappropriate behaviour towards a female colleague?
2: Well, I, th- I mean, I, I think first of all, I, I mean, actually, I, I don't think the comparison with respect quite works, but I understand why you make it. Um, I, I, I mean, sexual harassment, for example, or racial harassment or whatever it might be, um, is unlawful. So, so, so straight away, you're talking about an aspect of behavior within a workplace that is unlawful. It is not yet unlawful to print too many emails. You know, some people might think it should be, but it isn't. Mm. So that inevitably means that the way in which those two issues should be treated is different. And of course, you're talking about human dignity in the centre of the workplace. You know, that's what you're talking about—the the dignity of your employees and and their own rights to be working in, within a safe workplace. So that is a different scale of of, uh, of issue from an employer's perspective. Now, an environmental issue is different. An environmental issue, you know, will triggers different kinds of concerns. It might consider actual reputational risks for an employee, for an employer. Um, uh, You know, uh, it's uh, and and it's hard to see how an example like that kind of finds its way into a workforce situation. Um, What you might have is an employee who says, actually, we're wasting Too much paper i want you the employer to do something about it the employer says no you know you might have a case before tribunal as to whether or not you know that employee's belief in environmentalism was real and that was the reason why they were refused but i mean we we, we sort of get into I mean, we're sort of into nitty-gritty individual cases, so, but I think you know there is. But I think the way that the environmental movement, for example, impacts on employers is inevitably going to be different from the way the BLM movement will. The BLM movement, for example, like the Me Too movement, also will trigger at the moment potentially legal clauses within our legislation. So, for example, you know when you're thinking about. When employers are thinking about how they might want to support employees or show some sort of allyship with the BLM movement, um, then when they think about their own workforces and diversity within their own workforces, they might think about using positive action provisions, mm. uh, which will look different in all of the countries and all of uh, in all of our, you know, it, with all the participants here. Um, But they will think about things like that. They will think about how they might diversify their workforces. They might think about the recruitment agencies that they use. You know, there are all sorts of, um, you know, they will, you know, they might think about how they endorse those that the message of safety and diversity and solidarity. Now, the question of safety doesn't probably come into the environmental question. You know, an environmental an employee who 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 has great sympathy with the environmental movement might, for example, say, "Actually, I want time off to attend an Extinction Rebellion protest," or uh, "I'm going to come in late every day because I'm going to, you know, take a form of transport or walk or whatever that longer." You know that, that, that that's a different order. It's not. It doesn't mean to say that the movement is less important uh, globally, um, but at the moment, I think the way that the laws are defined in most of our countries, that's going to have a different relationship um, having said that some of the same concerns might appear so if somebody is you know using social media to highlight their environmental concerns for example or their anti-vax concerns or their anti-mask concerns or whatever it might be um, that might have absolutely no impact on the work on the employer it might have none at all and employers have to think very carefully about this, the, the rights to freedom of expression that that employees will still have to some degree but what if it directly impacts on the employer's work or reputation what might that what might that do what if attendance at a protest let's say an anti-lockdown protest for example um you know what what, attendance that protest does that have and it's likely to be captured on cameras or that person's likely to advertise on social media does that have an immediate impact on on, on, on the employer. Does the employer have a right to say you must not attend that protest? Can the employer do that? Um, so these are the sorts of questions that arise. They might be of a slightly different order, but they they, they may still cause significant issues for an employer to think about. Mm. I think that's
0: particularly true when when you're in a kind of regulated yeah. um uh industry where you have sort of layered on top of the freedom of expression and the reputational issues you also have regulatory issues and and if you if you're considering things like you know whether whether your employee in attending that protest is uh breaking the law uh breaking breaching regulations or doing something which might be sort of viewed uh, un, unfavorably by a regulator i think you as an employee you know the employer has a has an additional sort of thing to think about around around how they handle that
1: So an employer decides that they want to go out and and collect more information about the makeup of their workforce, wants to do the right thing in terms of um, quotas or or whatever it might be, and just get a better understanding of the diversity within their business. Are there risks in seeking to collect that sort of information um, from employees, for example, with respect to privacy, or is that something that employers should all be encouraged to go out and collect?
0: So I think, I mean, there are data protection issues in collecting data, in collecting that kind of data, and you have to be careful about how you do it. But, but there are exceptions in the data protection legislation for or parameters around how you can collect that diversity data. And I think um, you, could, you will be able to find a way to do that appropriately within the parameters of the data protection legislation in the UK, certainly. Um, how you use that data. I mean, you always, whenever you're collecting data, you need to think about why you're collecting it. And then what you're going to use it for and and how it how it's used um but i think that certainly i think it's a useful exercise for employers to understand sort of the baseline of where where they're at on diversity where they're at on, on various equality issues um and i think that that's really important
2: one one thing i agree completely with that Beth. And one thing that just makes me think about and we haven't talked about it but Um, increasingly the world of work is being very significantly impacted by algorithms and by Mm. uh, and by AI in general Um, and one of the things that employers will need to think hard about and that's that's a discussion for another day there is you know a a huge role um, both positive and negative in terms of algorithms in the workplace they are already a reality however little we've realized it and within the, the use of those algorithms will come all sorts of risks associated with potentially um, those social movements, you know. I mean, so one has to think, you know, algorithms which are collecting data, which are making assumptions about individuals, for example, employees, or potential applicants for jobs, even about dismissal. You know, the extent to which um, relevant pieces of data, including related to social move- movements, might impact on those decisions is very significant. And so it's something that I think... Um, employees, employers, sorry, will need to be very aware of in terms of their use of algorithms as well going forward.
3: Absolutely.
1: And certainly, once sorry, Marie.
3: Yeah, no, no, you know, uh, I just wanted to say that maybe uh, I'm agree with Shona that there's no. Uh, movements less important than others, like climate change and, and and me too movement, but I think it's when it affects to the the human being, our the dignity of the the human being. It's I think it takes more um, more impact and and people takes it more um, strongly. You know, it's true that um, climate change and environment movement are really very strong too. But when it impacts, no, uh, the Me Too movement impacts to the privacy of, of women and to the the dignity of women. I think it mm, it's it impacts more in society at, at that moment um, in Spain, obviously.
1: And in light of these movements, is it a good idea for an employer be to be taking a a positive stance and describing themselves as? you know, not just a not racist organisation, but an anti-racist organisation?
0: So I, I think you have to be a bit careful how, employers have to be a bit careful how they use words and whether whether what happens when you scratch the surface. So I think, you know, an employer can stand up and say it's an anti-racist organisation, um, but they need to make sure that they're backing that up with, with mm. you know, policies and action. I think, um, you know, you almost all employers in the uk will have some kind of policy which says you know we're an equal opportunities employer and we you know we are committed to diversity and inclusion um when it comes to actually defending a a discrimination claim in the tribunals it turns out you know none of those things are true so i think it's more about what they're doing on the ground and the reality of of their day-to-day practices than it is about the sort of big statements that they make Mm.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I also think that, um, I mean, and, and also sometimes, I mean, this is true in life as well as in as life as well as in law. But um, well-meaning statements often backfire. So mm-hmm. you know, if you, if a company makes a, a statement um, that they, you know, some sort of statement meant to be in solidarity with movement, but without perhaps really understanding it. Um, then I mean you can see easily the potential for that to go the wrong way and to create a huge public relations risk but also you know an actual problem within the work within the workforce so I think uh, I agree with Beth I think you have to be really careful I mean some of these statements are going to be much easier to make than others but um, I, I think as you know as a litigator you think about how you unpick these statements you know when someone comes comes to us and says well what does this mean actually if we say this do you think it's fine you know I'm going to think about well what happens if you say that in a court of law in in an employment tribunal uh, or in you know in 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 a court in some capacity and then we start to peel back what that looks like we start to peel back what your diverse workforce looks like or what your environmental policies look like or what your sexual discrimination recording of complaints looks like or what your facilitation of those complaints looks like, you know, or what your seniority level diversity at seniority levels looks like, you know. So you start to, and also, what does your training look like? Does your training look like, as I have seen countless times over the last, you know, couple of decades of working in this field, people say, well, yeah, I've had a quality training, yeah, I've had sexual harassment training, and it turns out when you look at that, what they meant was ten minutes as part of a one hour multi you know um uh sort of you know multi-question tick box exercise do you do this that and the other and that's it that's their training and i'm afraid that tends to come very easily undone in cross-examination in any tribunal but it also i think you know ultimately it's a bad look for for corporation if that's what they're going to rely on so i think um that's not to say that all you know companies have the ability or the desire to do extensive training on all of these issues but you then have to be careful what messaging you put out as well
1: so it can be a tough gig for employers out there practice what you preach You've got to control employee conduct within the workplace and outside of the workplace but find the right balance it's been a fascinating discussion today i want to thank you all Fiona Jolie, Marie Eugenia, and Beth Hale. Um, for everyone who attended the session, I hope you enjoyed it. Please do stick around. We're about to go to a networking session on the tables. Thank you all so much. Thank you.
2: Thanks very much. Thank you very much.